we live in unprecedented times. I'm getting kind of tired of hearing that phrase, unprecedented times. I mean, it's been so overused by pundits and politicians to describe what's happening in our nation over the last six months. It's kind of become this hackneyed expression. I guess it's intended to spur up uh, some emotions uh, in response to all the confusion that we've been experiencing. Of course, you know, what we're going through is, is unique. We've never had this particular uh, confluence of stress points, you know, a global pandemic, racial tension, uh, riots and unrest, fires consuming California, topped off with a contentious political election. We've never had to face all of those things all at the same time, but all those things have happened in the past, both here and around the world. It's not the first pandemic. It's not the first time there's been racial conflict, not the first time rioters have demolished city streets, uh, not the first time forest fires have burned out of control, not the first time political conflict has a nation on edge. If we could like get into a time machine, we could go back and visit those moments throughout human history and we'd see that what we're experiencing is not so different. The same basic emotions and concerns that we are facing were played out in the past as other people had to live their lives and find ways to cope with their circumstances. And they did find ways to cope with what they were going through. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here, right? So that should give us some hope that we will get through this uh, season of tribulation. We can look at the past and find hope in what we see. But what about the future? Right now, I think people are much more interested in trying to see into the future than they are in trying to learn from the past. What's around the corner? What's next? What's going to happen you know, with the virus, with the election, with the economy, with race relations? What's going to happen to restaurants and Broadway and schools? Uh, what will the, free, the future be like for our children or, or for us? What if we could get into that time machine and I mentioned and, and kind of go forward? What is it that you'd want to see? Maybe you'd want to see your future great-great-great-grandchildren. Or maybe you'd want to see what hot technologies will be uh, popular in 10 years so you know which stocks to buy tomorrow. Uh, maybe you'd want to see what shape our country is in two years from now, depending on who wins the election. Lots of interesting things we might want to see if we could travel into the future. But some of those things might actually scare us. It might be frightening to see what heartaches and troubles are also headed our way. Maybe we don't want to know. What is the future of the church? If we could travel into the future, what would we see about the future of our church and Christ's church in general? Well, one thing, a year from now, you'll most likely have a new senior pastor in place as I retire next August. Uh, that's one big area of speculation. What's that change going to feel like for the congregation? You know, our pastor nominating committee is going to start soliciting candidates this fall, start conducting interviews, and God willing, the right person will emerge to smoothly take over the reins of leadership. And I hope that transition is on your prayer list because it really should be. But more importantly, what will be the future of Christchurch post-pandemic. The quarantine and the economic upheaval have affected churches just as much as it has businesses and corporations and universities. This is not a fun time for churches as many are desperately trying to keep their heads above water, scrambling to find some way to connect with their people and somehow, somehow keep pursuing their mission as representatives of Christ. 
and many churches will not survive this challenge. I, I read one study recently that said as many as one-third of all Protestant churches in the U.S. may close their doors because of the pandemic. One-third, I mean, that is a lot of empty sanctuaries. And for those that do stay open, there's a tremendous pressure to figure out how to adapt to this new environment, knowing that we're not going to just be able to go back to doing church as it used to be. It's a whole new ball game, and the future is not crystal clear. I read a tweet this week by Pastor Steve Weens, who wrote this. He says, I'm a pastor, and I confess that when people say this pandemic is a great opportunity to rethink everything about how we do church, I throw up in my mouth a little bit, and then I feel an overwhelming desire to take a three-month nap. Well, I think every pastor knows that feeling. What will be the future of the church? And what will be your role in that future? Because like it or not, you're a participant in this future church, not just a spectator. You're part of what will make the future of the church. There is a future coming, and you need to be intentionally a part of it. What if right now you began to believe that there are future moments coming that will change your life and the lives of others for all eternity? Moments coming that will be rich with potential and possibility for Christ that we've never seen before. What if you knew there were divine moments coming where God would use you in such a way that nothing would ever be the same again? What if there are coming moments, defining moments, where the choices that you make will determine the, the momentum and the direction, not just of your future, but also the future of this church and Christ's wider church as we link arms with other believers? How would you begin to prepare for such future moments? The future of the church and the church of the future. What will be your role in that future? That's what we're going to be looking at in our message theme for the next few weeks. And we're going to be using the New Testament book of the Acts of the Apostles as our guide because the launch of the early church into the hostile world of ancient Rome has a lot of parallels to what will lie ahead for us. You know, we typically shorten the name of the book and simply call it Acts, but the full name is actually more meaningful. Praxis Apostolion, literally the actions of the apostles. It's an action story and one of the most exciting books of the Bible. But the actions of all the apostles are not really chronicled in it, only really James, John, Peter, and Paul. They're the only ones who appear with any real prominence. It's a book filled with conflict and confidence of power in the midst of persecution. It's the story of the life and health of the living Christ being poured into a sick society through fairly obscure men and women, very much like you and me. And the Acts of the, the Apostles, it actually serves as a bridge. We would never be able to understand the rest of the New Testament if we didn't have the book of Acts strategically placed between the Gospels and Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Think about it. At the end of the Gospels, we find a handful of Jewish followers of Jesus gathered in Jerusalem talking about a kingdom that's come to Israel. But fast forward 40 years to the book of Romans, and we find an apostle who's not even mentioned in the Gospels, who was not even one of the twelve. He's writing to a band of Christians now in the capital city of Rome. The Gospel of Christ has spread from obscurity in Palestine to the very center of the Roman Empire, even into the household of the emperor. How did that happen? Well, the book of Acts tells us how. 
the first 11 verses of chapter 1 sort of constitute an introduction to the whole book of Acts, giving us sort of the keys to the book. It describes a divine moment when Jesus reveals his essential strategy by which he, he proposes to change the world, a strategy which is the secret of the revolutionary character of the church when it was operating as it was intended to operate. The strategy is given to us starting in verses 1 and 2. Let me read. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. The writer here is Dr. Luke, known as the beloved physician who accompanied Paul on many of his journeys. He was Paul's companion through danger, through endless difficulty, up and down the length and breadth of the ancient Roman Empire. Dr. Luke wrote two books as part of the New Testament, the Gospel according to Luke, and then the Book of Acts, sort of a part one and a part two as a history of how the church came to be. Both books are dedicated to someone named Theophilus. We don't really know anything about him except his name, but scholars suggest that he might have been like a wealthy benefactor who financed Dr. Luke as he chronicled the life of Jesus and the growth of the early church. The name Theophilus means loved by God, so it's also possible that Theophilus was not a real person, but kind of a substitute name uh, standing for all young Christians who were eager to learn the history of their faith. So Luke's first book, the Gospel, begins this way. He writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those uh, from the first who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. The certainty of the things that you have been taught. Luke's Gospel is this orderly, chronological telling of the life and the teachings of Jesus and the meaning of his death and his resurrection. This second book is the continuation of what Jesus began to do. In a way, in a real sense, Acts is not about the acts of Christians, but the continuing act of Jesus through his followers. It's an account of what Jesus continues to do and to teach through the apostles. In the Gospels, Jesus did it in his own physical body. In the book of Acts, Jesus is doing it through the bodies of the men and women who are indwelt by his Holy Spirit. And here's God's best strategy for ancient times and for today, a strategy that will always mark the true church regardless of culture or technology. When God wants to communicate his truth, he wraps it up in a person. When God wants to communicate his truth, he wraps it in a person. God's best strategy for communication has always been and will always be a life that's transformed by grace, a life which manifests the ongoing presence of Christ. This is the strategy of the church in the book of Acts. It's a record of incarnation, men and women who are possessed by Jesus in the most positive usage of that word. They are possessed, they are owned, they are indwelt, they are living Jesus's way and living in Jesus's power. This is the secret of authentic original Christianity, and it's the secret for the church of the future. No matter what other tools or strategies the church may adopt, 
whether that's online technologies, virtual discipleship, small house churches, replacing large sanctuaries. The true power of the church is always going to be people transformed by Christ. God uses ordinary people who have made themselves available to him. God uses ordinary people to do his extraordinary work in the world. That means he can use you if you let him, if you're open to him, if you allow the Holy Spirit to flow freely in your life. The secret of the church has always been and will always continue to be people who are possessed by Christ. In this sense, the book of Acts is an unfinished book. It has never been a book that ends. The story of the church is still being written. The book closes in chapter 28 with Paul in the city of Rome. He's under house arrest, living in his own rented place. But it ends so abruptly, you'd think that you would turn over the next page and, and begin the next adventure. The Acts of the Apostles, in a sense, is only volume one on the history of Christ's church. And you and I, we are writing chapter 2020. It may well be the last volume in the series, I don't know, and we're gonna talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes. But one day the last volume will be written and the church will triumphantly unite with Jesus for all eternity. That's the final, the finale, I mean, the final chapter of God's dealings with our world. So the church of the future and the future of the church are all tied to one essential thing, people transformed by the grace of Christ. Lights in the darkness. God's main method has always been his people. People so possessed by Christ that they give themselves to his service in this world. And, and we will never get past this. No gimmicks can replace it. No technology can supplant it. People on fire for Christ. People have the fire of the Holy Spirit burning in their souls. We will never get past this. The Christian faith has always been, will always be one beggar telling another beggar, where to find bread. Second thing, the main message of the church must always be the same. And that message is Jesus alive. That incomparable fact is what powers the church forward regardless of circumstances. Let's look at verse three. After his sufferings, Jesus presented himself to the apostles and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, Jesus gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Dr. Luke stresses for us the great and central fact of the Christian faith is Jesus alive. What empowers the early church and what will empower the church of the future is not nostalgia over a dead Marty, martyr or the pithy teachings of some ancient sage. What empowers the church always is the risen Christ, a real physical resurrection, not a myth, not wishful thinking, not symbolic, not some ghostly disembodied spirit, but the real physical body out of the grave conquering death, proving that Jesus was who he said he was and that all his words are true. That's why Dr. Luke makes it so clear in his gospel and here in Acts to make sure people understand Christ's resurrection was no hallucination. Many appearances with many different eyewitnesses, many meals shared. Dr. Luke is smart enough in essence to say, I'm not interested in following a dead Messiah. History is littered with them. Jesus is the only one who presented himself 
and gave convincing proofs that he was alive. Luke thought it was important to tell his readers that people eyeballed Jesus for more than a month after his resurrection. This marvelous fact of Jesus alive is the bedrock on which all Christian faith ultimately rests. The Apostle Paul remembers and he holds it up for us and says, in effect, to the enemies of Christ, look, if you want to destroy our faith, then disprove this fact. It all rests on this. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. You can read that in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. Anytime you're troubled with doubts or under attack for your faith, just come back to this one fundamental fact, Jesus alive. That's why we pride ourselves on being a Christ-centered church. We never move beyond this. Jesus alive, alive in resurrection, alive in our hearts as we love him and receive his grace and mercy. So the method God works through people transformed by Christ, the message Jesus alive, and the third key, the means, and that's the Holy Spirit set free. Here's the second part of verse four again. Do not leave Jerusalem but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells them literally, stick around, don't go anywhere. Why? Because you're gonna make a mess of it if you try being a Christian without this. You'll make a mess of it if you try being a church without this. This thing is an essential. You cannot be an effective Christian if you are operating outside of the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't have a healthy, vibrant church without the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Every attempt made to advance the cause of Christ, which does not arise from the Holy Spirit as its source, really only damages the message that God wants to convey. This is absolutely essential, Jesus is saying to his ancient believers. So don't try anything without the Spirit. Wait, just wait, don't be impulsive. Don't jump ahead. Wait, and in a few days you will receive the promise of the Father. Now, we could do a whole series on the role of the Holy Spirit just based on that last phrase, the promise of the Father. Maybe I can do that later in the year. What we need to remember this morning is that the fullness of the Holy Spirit is given immediately. When anyone believes in Jesus, the indwelling Holy Spirit in your soul is the means by which the risen life of Jesus becomes available to you continuously and constantly. All who Christ is, is made available through all of the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. All who Christ is, is made available through all of the Holy Spirit. And that gift is now yours from the Father. You don't need to have a special sign. You don't need uh, ecstatic feelings, no emotional outbursts. The indwelling happens as Jesus said it would anytime someone believes. Now, some people do experience the indwelling spirit that way in a more ecstatic experience, and praise God for that. But most of us, quite frankly, do not. For most, the spirit enters peacefully and calmly, and just as surely because his presence is based on Christ's promise, not on our emotions. The Holy Spirit is the means by which God will carry out his work within the lives of individual Christians and within the larger body of Christ, the church. What fascinates me, though, is the response of the apostles in verse 8. It said, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? 
They're trying to predict the future. They're still focused on timetables and schedules and programs. What's going to happen? What are you going to do? What is this all going to play out? How's it going to happen? The Lord Jesus said, this is not for you to know. The timing of God's kingdom is not for you to know. This is all in the Father's authority. Your task is to be the manifestation of power, not the person who's knowledgeable of the program. The Father will take care of that. You content yourself with exercising the power that's given to you right here and right now, and the Father will put it all together as he sees fit. You see, this has often been the mistake of the church. The church has thought it had the task of programming the work of God, that it was up to us to set up timetables and establish structures and the frameworks and the, that the work would go on, that we should you know, establish uh, how we're going to do this systematically all around the world. But we've never been able to do it. And the pandemic, if anything, has exposed how dependent our contemporary churches have become on sort of human-made marketing strategies and vision statements and flashy programs to kind of carry out the work of Christ. And all that failed during the COVID crisis. All that went down the tubes with the quarantine. The more dependent a church is on these human-made schemes and flashy programs, the harder the church crashed during the COVID pandemic. And there's another thread here that's interesting. Christians love to speculate on when or how Christ will return. People love spinning out apocalyptic scenarios and end times disaster conspiracies. They, they love to speculate on figuring it all out. I mean, just notice how many Christians are being sucked into this current uh, uh, QAnon conspiracy theory. Such nonsense, but people believe it because they can't be content not knowing the future. And conspiracy theories are a great, great way to feel like, you know, you've got this secret knowledge that explains everything. And that kind of makes you feel special and maybe somewhat superior to the rest of the world because somehow now you're more secure because you've got it all figured out. The apostles were that way. And it showed that they still didn't have their thinking aligned with what Jesus actually wanted them to do. They did not understand their purpose. Jesus is so clear, and we just don't listen to him. The times and the seasons are not for you to know. The Father has kept that in his own authority. But, Jesus said, I'm not going to let you know the program. I'll give you the power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Christ promises this most wonderful thing, his resurrection power. So the future of the church and the church of the future. Like a three-legged stool, Dr. Luke gives us the three main things that will bring balance to the church at all times and in all seasons. The main method, people transformed by the grace of Christ. The main message, Jesus alive. The primary means the Holy Spirit set free. Our job is to be in alignment with what God is already doing. Do you feel like your life is aligned with Christ? Do you know that your purpose in living is connected to God's greater purpose. I hope so. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we just uh, thank you for the challenge of this passage. We don't know what the future is. So the future for our church or the churches around us or the church in general, Lord, we know that you will take care of it. You've promised that your church will stand even against the gates of hell. So Lord, we just want to have confidence in you, but most of all, we want to be in alignment with you that we would know that our lives are transformed by your grace, that we would be 
have solid confidence in the message that Jesus is alive and that we would allow the Holy Spirit to be set free within our hearts, Lord Jesus. Help us to do that this week. Give us opportunities to uh, be a good witness for you through the way that we live. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.